Imagine waking up on December 16th, 2017. You sit up, stretch, shuffle to the kitchen, spoon out your coffee, and click the button on. Shuffle to the restroom as your mind starts to wander to fluffy eggs and sizzling bacon. Mmm, hash browns. A little while later, you turn the stove off, place the last little piece of crispy bacon on your plate, grab your cup of coffee, and sit down at your kitchen table. You fire up the laptop and click until you reach the site for your favorite source of headlines. It doesn't take long until your eyes land soundly on one in particular, Glowing Auras and Black Money, the Pentagon's mysterious UFO program. And across the country, a collective paradigm shifts. Welcome back to the Paranormal Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen, and welcome to season five, everyone. Oh, I am so excited to be back with you all, back into the fray. Um, if you have been following along on the socials, you will have seen the hints dropped about the subject that we will be covering this season. We will be getting into all things UFOs and, and extraterrestrial intelligence and life forms and all of that. I am so excited because this is a subject that I don't know a ton about. It is pretty new to me. Um, and just by that, I just mean that it's it's not something that I've looked at any deeper than surface level before it. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But uh, yeah, just for me personally, I'm, I'm very excited to get into a subject that I have not extensively looked at at this level uh, up till this point. So <laughs> you'll get to come on that journey with me. Um, and uh, hey, if you're watching this on video right now, congratulations, you must be subscribed to my YouTube channel or you are a Patreon member and have gotten it early. Congrats to you. So this season, um, We've got a lot to cover, a lot to get into. It's going to go deep. I have already started some of the research, and what I have found so far is is just it's astounding. It's it's like it's unbelievable and jaw dropping. We will just be starting at the beginning today. It is just the intro episode, so I think let's just go ahead and just start. Um, so. Most experiences and encounters with UFOs and extraterrestrial intelligence can be explained. A small percentage, though, cannot. And it's a topic of interest to many. It's been studied behind closed doors and, and talked about in hushed tones by many. Examples of possible sightings go back to the earliest days of our written record, and experiences of this nature in our modern times can be had by anyone from the most private, remotest corners of the smallest of towns to the upper echelons of the military and the government. People are seeing objects in the sky that they cannot explain. And unlike before the recent boon in our personal technologies, when it was easy enough to brush off someone's experience as nothing more than a dream or a mirage or an act of imagination, residents of this country and across the world are capturing video and photo evidence to back up what they say they are seeing. Now, unlike most other subjects of the paranormal, this one exists somewhat in the material world. 
we are not just seeing with our eyes alone and maybe mistaken. We, or whether by ourselves or with a whole group of people at a time, are capturing physical proof of a physical thing that exceeds our imagination and current understanding of reality. So briefly, I I do want to just pop back to that program, the Pentagon program. That mysterious program lasted from 2007 to 2012 when its funding dried up. But according to military intelligence official Lou Elizondo, investigations continued and he worked with officials from the CIA and the Navy. He resigned from his Pentagon post in October of 2016 to protest what he characterized as excessive secrecy and internal opposition. Included in his resignation letter to Defense Secretary Jim Mattis was the question, why aren't we spending more time and effort on this issue? And I think that is a really good question. Before we go any further, a quick word from our sponsors. Cheers to the new year! This time around in 2023, it's time to make resolutions you actually keep. Our sponsors at Manscaped have the perfect tools to keep you and your significant other clean and tidy this year. Manscaped tools for his jewels are so good, you'll want them for yourself. The Platinum Package 4.0 is the perfect start to set your first New Year's resolution with good intentions and join the 7 million people worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code PNG for 20% off plus free shipping. Manscaped sent me some goodies, you guys. Um, I'm going to be busy for a while. So, If you have liked any of the products I've talked about so far on the show, you might be interested in their Platinum Package. It is a luxury full-body grooming kit, and it includes a lot of the same items that can be found in the Performance Package, such as the Lawnmower 4.0, the Weed Whacker, uh, the Crop Preserver, the Crop Reviver. In addition to those... The Platinum Package also sends you a two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. It sends you their body wash, which is amazing. It is so good. I'll talk about that in a second. And they also include a deodorant. And and, uh, they also send along two free gifts with your purchase. So that sounds like a great way to start out the new you in the new year, fellas. And ladies, ladies too. Okay, so... I had to use the body wash recently. Well, I mean, I didn't have to. I wanted to. I was going to already. But like, you know, like I had to. I ran out of my regular stuff. And uh, I was like, you know what? What the hell? It is cologne infused and it smells really good. Like it's uh, yummy. It's so good. I love their signature scent. I do. Like personally, I love it. I would wear it. Um, It didn't leave any weird residue on my skin like some soaps can, which is great. It's also infused with aloe vera and sea salt. It just left my skin feeling like squeaky clean (laughs) and and hydrated. My skin felt really nice, you guys. So you know what, ladies? Sometimes you got to dip into your boy's supplies. Y'all know what I mean. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PNG. New year, no pubes. (laughs) In 2023, 
with Manscaped. Obviously, I did not <laughs> read the copy before I started recording. So, <laughs> all right, let's get back to it. So, perhaps Mr. Elizondo's parting words had an impact because the Pentagon has continued to quietly push investigation of unidentified flying objects. And this has led to hundreds of new reports in recent days, and much more than hundreds prior to that. Sean Kirkpatrick, the director of a newly formed department called the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or ARO, doesn't rule out the possibility of extraterrestrial life, though officials investigating all new reports say that they have seen nothing yet that indicates intelligent alien life, so long as they are looking. In an article published last month by ABC, Kirkpatrick says that they are taking a scientific approach to the research, structuring their analysis to be very thorough and rigorous, and that they would go through it all. He was quoted in the article saying, As a physicist, I have to adhere to the scientific method, and I will follow that data and science wherever it goes. Arrow focuses on unexplained activity around military installations, restricted airspace, and other areas of interest, and is aimed at helping identify possible threats to the safety of U.S. military operations and national security. Though I wish they were including private reports in their focus, um, as I was saying on an episode of Weekly Strange News with Christina Gomez, um, the fact that military officials and pilots are even reporting these experiences with flying objects that they don't understand and they can't explain, it gives this subject quite a bit more gravity. It gives it an air of honesty because you've got to think about what kind of person uh, makes it into the higher ranks of the military or becomes a Navy pilot or a commercial airlines pilot. Like, of course, you can get somebody, you know, with a screw loose that, that gets through the cracks. But I think it's safe to assume that for the most part, the screening process that includes physical and mental screening, uh, rigorous training, the commitment that is required, and the ever-present, like even today, stigma that is associated with reporting experiences like this, it puts these people at an all-time high level of being a generally reliable, honest, uh, observant, and alert type person. Someone to trust when they say something happened in the way that it did. Because once upon a time, not that long ago, the stakes were too much. Like people lost their jobs or they were demoted. The stakes were way too high and experiences often went unreported. All right. So we're going to jump around a little bit here. But right now I wanted to take a moment to talk just just a tiny bit, touch upon some American military history, specifically from the uh, from 1947 to 1969, that time period. And we are just touching upon it today. Um, there will be a much further exploration of it in an upcoming episode. The American military studied the UFO phenomenon extensively from 1947 up until the closure of their most famous program, Project Blue Book, in 1969. 
Robert C. Siemens Jr., who was the Secretary of the Air Force at the time when announcing the closure, stated that the project no longer could be justified either on the grounds of national security or in the interest of science. Edward Condon, a physicist at the University of Colorado who had been selected to head up the final review and report of Project Blue Book, stated, Our general conclusion is that nothing has come from the study of UFOs in the past 21 years that has added to scientific knowledge. Careful consideration of the record as it is available to us leads us to conclude that further extensive study of UFOs probably cannot be justified in the expectation that science will be advanced thereby. Though he would also make mention that even though the report's recommendation was against further research, that may not be true for all time. Interesting thing to say. Uh, The conclusion of the government program would take place, having studied 12,618 sightings. They would leave behind 701 events, completely unexplained, unable to assign them the usual explanations of the day, including clouds, conventional aircraft, stars, and spy planes. One of the books I am using this season for research is called The Big Book of UFO Facts, Figures, and Truth. It is by Stephen Spignacy and William J. Burns. The authors make a quick mention to a possible conspiracy surrounding the uh, Condon's final conclusion. And while I don't want to spend too much time on the conspiracy side of this subject, because we will be here forever, I I, I wanted to make mention of it because I'm actually unsure if it's going to come into play later down the road as we get further into the research. They said that Condon was following the instructions of the U.S. Air Force, who wanted the hell out of the UFO game and wanted Project Blue Book shut down. When attorney Roy Cohn, who was working for Senator Joe McCarthy on Senate hearings into communist activities, accused Condon of being a subversive because he was teaching quantum theory, which was considered a subversive subject, Condon agreed to do the government's bidding, disparaging the concept of UFOs in order to quickly get back into their good graces. At this point, I have absolutely no idea if this is a well-known conspiracy theory or it's considered fact by those of you who are more well-versed with this subject, or if it's just a belief held by the authors. Um, Time will tell, I suppose. All right, briefly, I wanted to speak to some examples of the types of sightings that were left on the table after Project Blue Book shut down. I have pulled a couple of excerpts straight from this book, the big book of UFO facts, figures, and truth. And let's start with this one. All right. The first sighting took place about 250 miles southwest of Bermuda. August 25, 1950, a B-29 followed an unidentified target and passed it at a quarter-mile distance. The target then followed the B-29 for five minutes before repassing it and outspeeding it. Sped away. Keep in mind, these are sightings that were left unexplained by Project Blue Book. All right. Another, in 1952... 60 miles from Point Conception, California, a B-29 navigator and radar operator tracked a target traveling at an estimated 3,000 miles per hour. Whoa. Okay. In the same year, out of Kirksville, Missouri, several radar controllers spotted several unexplainable blips. 
on radar, moving at 1,700 miles per hour. And it's not just about incredible feats of speed, either. There is something so unsettling about hovering capabilities in 1950s America, when <laughs> that kind of technology was just a sparkle in some geeky engineer's eyeballs. In Innes, Montana, U.S. Air Force personnel watched two to five flat disc-shaped objects in the sky, one disc hovering for three to four minutes while the others circled it. The entire sighting lasted about 30 minutes. And not just in America. At Haneda Air Force Base in Japan, U.S. Air Force F-94 jet interceptor pilots tracked an unknown target for about 90 seconds when control tower operators picked up a dark shape with a visible light that flew approximately 380 miles per hour, hovered, flew curves, and performed a variety of impossible maneuvers. They would watch this mysterious air show for almost an hour. Though Project Blue Book was shut down, apparently the U.S. military did continue unofficially collecting reports of sightings and even investigated a few following that closure. Again, according to this book. This season, I am relying heavily on the literature that I have picked up. Um, I would love your suggestions for absolute must-reads. Must-read them. I keep mentioning this book, but I have been able to collect uh, some. I've got some Jacques Vallée. I've got Bud Hopkins. I've got this really cool compilation of uh, essays written by people like Stanton Friedman and Nick Redfern and Micah Hanks. Um, that's really cool. Um, I also I, I picked up two books on Roswell, and and they're they're thick old thick old books. Uh, I wasn't sure how much time. I wanted to spend on a subject that's been done so ad nauseum, but I I feel like if I'm going to be talking about this subject, um, I need to at least be familiar with that case. And I also picked up this one. It's just simply titled UFOs. Well, it's it's got a little subtitle to it, but UFOs by Leslie Keen. It's such a good book, dudes. Such a good book. But yeah, look, I I want to do this subject as much justice as I possibly can. So please, 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 I'm begging you, uh, send, message me those books that I, I need to be reading, those must-reads, and uh, I, I will get them. <laughs> I'll get them. So uh, yeah, and you know what? If you send along something really cool, really spectacular, maybe I'll introduce it to the Skeptical Believers Book Club on Patreon and share that knowledge. Okay, so for the remainder of today's show, um, I also wanted to touch on a few cases that really piqued my interest and my curiosity right here at the start. And these are well-known cases. I'm, I'm not about to tell you something that you've never heard or, or anything that you don't already know. But damn, dudes, they, these, just, these just blew me away, you know? So I wanted to share them here with you. All right, here we go. I am going to start with this one because watching the footage literally gave me chills. On March 13th, 1997, thousands of residents in and around Phoenix, Arizona would witness something inexplicable in the skies over their city. They would ultimately report seeing the same lights in the same areas over the span of a few hours. Thousands saw this, 
People came out of their homes, pulled their cars over to watch from the sides of roads. Some went to lookout points of the city in order to just watch the event unfold more clearly, including the governor at the time, Fife Symington, when he'd been listening to the news coverage of others reporting strange lights in the sky. He took his car out to Squaw Peak to see for himself and witnessed something he would later describe as otherworldly. A massive delta-shaped form with lights appeared in addition to the lights that were already present. Whatever these were, some of those various descriptions said they were big, hovering at a standstill, and absolutely silent. And that observation alone freaked a lot of people out, the fact that it wasn't making any noise. It was reported that after the lights flickered out or left the Phoenix area and the event was over, people in Tucson, 116 miles away, reported seeing them just minutes later over their city. A really interesting report submitted by someone claiming to be an airman with the Air Force was called into the National UFO Reporting Center some eight hours after the event. He claimed that when the event started, two U.S. Air Force F-15 fighter jets had been dispatched to get up there and take a closer look and had intercepted one of the objects. It's reported they encountered something they had never seen before and something they couldn't explain. And upon landing, both pilots climbed from their aircraft quite shaken, describing five lights in a triangular pattern. They weren't sure if it was one large aircraft or five individual aircraft in formation, but they, for some reason, were scared. Though the presence of F-15s was never confirmed, the young man who called in the report provided detailed information that would later prove accurate based on what investigators reconstructed from witnesses over the following months. The aftermath of this event is the damage control scramble that you might expect following an event like this. The National Guard would claim that they were conducting flare exercises outside of Phoenix that night. That's all fine and dandy, and I actually have zero doubt that there were actually flares dropped. But even Governor Symington, who had been a pilot and, again, saw these lights for himself, knew these were not those. What he saw were not flares, because flares don't do what these lights had done. Not to mention... <laughs> <laughs> These flare exercises were said to take place at 10 p.m. This event began hours earlier with the very first notice of lights and call about them coming in at 6.55 p.m. I mean, if you're going to take the, the scoot and scramble uh, cover-up approach to make thousands of people feel like they're crazy, at the very least, get the times right. Governor Symington, at least to start out, asked the Air Force to look into it. Senator John McCain, who was open to the idea of these being unidentified flying objects, would ask them also and be told the Air Force doesn't investigate UFOs, which is historically not accurate. Three months later, the Arizona National Guard would say on the record that they didn't have an explanation for all of the lights. And later that year, the governor would essentially shut down any hopes of any serious investigation at an infamous emergency news conference he called, where he said the Department of Homeland Security had made some headway and had caught the perpetrator. May we all look upon the guilty party, he would say right before they walked his chief of staff out dressed in full alien costume and mask, 
wearing handcuffs. Funny, funny stuff. So funny. So I recently did a TikTok on this next one. Um, So if you follow me on TikTok, you'll recognize it right away. On November 7th, 2006, more than a dozen employees at Chicago O'Hare International Airport witnessed a large disc-shaped object hovering at an estimated 1,500 feet above gate C-17. The fully released transcript between a United supervisor and air traffic control that was released by the FAA only thanks to a Freedom of Information Act request is it's quite simply astounding. Um, it, it's just very illuminating in regards to the environment of secrecy and taboo that surrounded and continues to surround these kinds of sightings. This story ends with an explanation issued by the FAA that what folks witnessed that day was nothing more than a hole punch cloud. And you may have heard that, and you may have believed that and moved on with your life. And if you would like to continue believing that, I recommend you turn the show off now, because I'm going to explain why that is 100% impossible. We'll get into it in just a moment. You can find a link to the audio transcript below in the show notes, but let's just look at it here. I've summed it up just to be brief. Uh, just to get a feel for the situation as it was unfolding. The first portion takes place between the United supervisor named Sue and air traffic control tower operator Dave. Sue starts, hey, did you see a flying disc out by C-17? There's some laughter here. She continues, that's what a pilot in the ramp area at C-17 told us. They saw some flying disc above them, but we can't see above us. More laughter before Dave replies, Hey, you guys been celebrating the holidays or anything or what? You're celebrating Christmas today? I haven't seen anything, Sue, and if I did, I wouldn't admit to it. No, I have not seen any flying disc at gate C-17. They laugh and hang up. A few minutes later, Sue calls back and speaks to operator Dwight. This is Sue from United. There was a disc out there flying around. There was a what? A disc. A disc? Can you hang on for one second? About 30 seconds pass, and he comes back with, Okay, I'm sorry, what can I do for you now? Sue says, I'm sorry, I told Dave there was a disc flying outside above Charlie 17, and he thought I was pretty much high, but I'm not high and I'm not drinking, so someone got a picture of it. So if you guys see it out there, a disc? Like a frisbee? Sue says, like a UFO type thing. And this goes on for a couple more seconds, Sue giggling and obviously nervous, and Dwight a little less humored than Dave about the prospect of a UFO hovering above him and not sounding like he's quite buying it. And it's understandable because no one was picking anything up on radar. Nothing. So it's reported from eyewitness testimony that this object viewed was about the size of a quarter to a half dollar held at arm's length from where people were standing on the ground, putting the estimated size range of this thing anywhere between 22 to 88 feet in diameter. It was reported that when the object departed, it ascended straight up at a high rate of speed and cut a perfect circle in the overcast clouds above it. Witnesses report they were able to look through the hole and see blue sky before the cloud slowly closed in, closing up the hole. 
Most airport employees and pilots who said they witnessed the disc that day have chosen to remain anonymous in fear of losing their jobs. The photo that Sue referenced has never surfaced. I suspect for the same reason. An FAA spokesperson initially tried to explain the incident as airport lights reflecting off the bottom of the cloud ceiling. But when it was pointed out that this incident took place during the daylight and the airport lights had not been turned on yet, they landed on their second explanation, that people had mistaken a hole punch cloud for a hovering disc. Though the disc was viewed for an extended period of time, again, at an estimated 1,500 feet and below the cloud deck, before the hole in the clouds above it was created. The reason a hole punch cloud cannot possibly be the explanation. Not only is the hole punch cloud a relatively rare phenomenon to begin with, only occurring under a very specific set of circumstances, the temperature must be below freezing for one to form. And it was 56 degrees at the 1,900 feet height of the cloud deck above the airport that day. So, definitely not cold enough for this to be the case. Try again, FAA. That information comes from Leslie Keene's book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. You know, it's pretty amazing to me that the FAA, who will investigate the smallest of safety issues, safety concerns. Like, literally, if it, if it had been anything else, anything else that day, uh, another plane, a group of balloons, a, a, a rogue herd of seagulls just chilling up there for some reason, that probably would have been investigated and taken seriously as it pertained to airport staff and passenger safety. But the FAA tried really hard to ignore this incident, despite safety implications, outright refusing to even look into it, much less launch an investigation into what multiple credible witnesses, experts on various forms of aircraft, um, expertly familiar with different weather phenomenons, standing at, at separate and varying vantage points, said that they saw that day. It's just strange stuff, dudes. And I feel like I'm getting a little hot under the collar for some reason. I, You know what? I, I just get amped up. Um, but I'm, I'm having fun with this stuff. And if you are enjoying this, you can look forward to the next solo episode and the first actual deep dive into this subject in just two weeks where we will go into so many more sightings and encounters throughout history. But just one more for today, and uh, and then we'll call it good. And we may be saving the most important one for last, and we can talk about why afterward. It wasn't behaving by the normal laws of physics. That is a concerning quote from a Navy pilot who, on November 14, 2004, captured something incredible on his aircraft's infrared camera. Radar operators on the USS Princeton told Commander David Fravor and his junior, Alex Dietrich, on that day's training exercise that they had been seeing some odd, strangely flying objects in groups in the area. 
Their two jets included a pilot and backseater in each and had already taken off from the carrier, the USS Nimitz, and were in the air on the way to the training site about 40 miles south of the ship when it came over the radio that the training was canceled. They had a real-world vector that they wanted the jets to go check out. Strange objects, yes. According to one of the operators, the clusters they were seeing were flying too high to be birds, too slow, at least at the time they were being picked up on radar, to be conventional aircraft, and were not traveling on any established flight path. The radar operators would spend the next two weeks leading up to the sighting trying to figure out what the heck these objects were that they were tracking, going so far as to shut down the ship's radar system and recalibrate in order to ensure that they weren't getting something like a false target or false positive by their system. They said they had tracked up to a dozen of them by the time the sighting took place and could see them coming down from an altitude of about 80,000 feet, which is where you start to see the curvature of the Earth, you're in space, and watch as they came down and hung out around 20,000 feet. And then they would watch as they would just shoot straight back up and disappear. So, Commander Fravor and his junior, Lieutenant Commander Alex Dietrich, at about 40 miles south of the ship, started making their way west toward where the ship's radars were picking up the movement. When they were told they were right upon it, they looked down at a really strange sight. They first noticed churning water beneath them. Fravor describes the disturbed water looking like it was in the shape of a cross and about the size of a 737. As they continued to look, they made visual confirmation of a smooth, white, oblong object flying at high speed and erratically about 50 feet above the disturbance in the fashion of a ping-pong ball moving in all directions without turning in those directions, if that makes sense. So... It maintained its same position while moving north, south, east, west, erratically. I immediately think of like an old school arcade game. Fravor estimated the size to be about 40 feet long. And just for reference, the uh, jets he and Dietrich were flying are about 56 feet long. They began circling the object, maintaining their altitude at 20,000 feet with the object below them at 50 feet above the sea level, when Fravor decided he was going to investigate a little closer and began descending as he continued circling around it. It was at that point, the object seemed to take notice of them and began mirroring the position of his jet as he continued descending and it began to ascend toward him, keeping its position in opposition to his. As he was getting right about level with this thing, he turned in toward it and got about half mile from it when Fravor says it suddenly disappeared. As he describes it in interviews, poof, it was just gone. One second it was there, the next it was gone, like a magic trick. Fravor called up to Dietrich, who had remained up top, to ask her if they had seen that, and they radioed back, confirming, it's just gone, sir. And when Fravor circled to take another look at the disturbance beneath the surface of the water, it too was just gone. The water stood perfectly still and there was nothing there. The two jets began to head back to their original training site when the message came over the radio not 30 seconds since the object had vanished. Sir, you're not going to believe this, but that thing is now at your original cap point. 
which is where they originally were holding, 40 miles south of the ship, and now 60 miles east of where they had just encountered the object. And the controller hadn't tracked it to that point. The object just seemed to appear on their radar. So Fravor and Dietrich arrive back at that position. They don't see it when they arrive. Radars aren't picking anything up. Their sensors aren't picking anything up. They circled around a few times before calling it good and heading back to the ship to land. As they were offloading, they told the next crew that was just heading out what had happened. The backseater, manned by Chad Underwood, seems to have been a bit excited, saying he was going to find this thing when they were out there. And thanks to his determination, we now have the famous Tic Tac video. He and his pilot did encounter it. Underwood, as I understand it, spotted it and went to lock onto the target and started getting feedback that the sensor was being jammed up. Now, Fravor has publicly stated the object was actively jamming rather than passively jamming Underwood's system, which is a, a very interesting tidbit to keep in mind. It means this thing was technological in nature. So anyway, Underwood is messing with his system and sensors and thinks quickly to switch over to his targeting pod, which takes a passing scan of the object where it finally locks onto the moving target providing us with that very exceptional piece of UFO footage. The entire clip only lasts about a minute, minute and a half, uh, before the object makes a surprising and quick exit, escaping the locked scan and darting quickly off stage left in the video's final moments. And that is a huge deal, dudes. Fravor, upon reviewing the footage, estimates this object was moving faster than even the fastest, most advanced jet that we have on the market today. And he adds that if our fastest jet did the same maneuver while being a locked target like the object in the video, the system would have been able to stay locked on it. During this capture, the eyewitness observation by Dietrich and Fravor and the preceding sightings by radar control, the following details were noted. It did not create exhaust. It had no flight control surfaces, did not have any visible means of propulsion, it exhibited ballistic missile-type characteristics moving quickly and effortlessly from very high altitudes to very low altitudes without creating a sonic boom. It had the capability or shielding technology to jam radar. It had some form of intelligent control to it and was intelligently observant of its surroundings and the jets when they entered its vicinity. This particular account is truly exceptional. No other UFO event or sighting up to this point has had all of the aspects that makes this one so special. The credibility of not one, but multiple witnesses, the unwavering eyewitness testimony of the pilots prior to the video being captured, the video <laughs> evidence that was captured, uh, the span of time from the two weeks of radar picking it up, uh, leading up to the day of the event and the eyewitness testimony of those pilots, to it being picked up again on radar to the second crew going out, seeing it with their eyeballs and capturing it on video. And from what I can tell, it has four of the five observables that Lou Elizondo talks about. And for this uh specific incident, those would be anti-gravity lift, instantaneous acceleration, 
hypersonic velocity without signatures, and cloaking. It should be clear to everyone just how important this sighting was. And it's, it's brought about new procedures for military members to actually feel encouraged to report their sightings. It is brought to light the fact that this is happening, that military pilots have been witnessing this phenomena for a very long time. Uh, it makes it crystal clear that there are highly advanced technological anomalies flying around this earth that even the top brass and expertise of the military, they don't understand what it is. They, they, they don't know what the hell it is. This event brought UFOs to the table and it's brought people to the table who might have otherwise just brushed it off as uh, like they would with anything else that they don't understand. This event has done for the subject of UFOs what no other event or sighting um, has done for the subject before or for any other uh, paranormal topic uh, to date. <laughs> but people still are skeptical of this one. And that's just so weird to me. Um, yeah, if, if someone is going to look at an event like this and call bullshit just because they can't accept that it's anything but... Uh, I, I, I don't know what to tell those people. <laughs> They're being handed the literal proof and credibility that they have clamored on about for decades, and they're still clamoring on about it. If people aren't willing to look beyond the safety of their four walls when they are presented with something like this, uh, there's, there's really nothing that anyone can say that, that, that would change that. Um, this stuff is incredible. And it's real, and it's really happening. Um, and it raises some valid concerns, and, and it raises some good questions. Um, there is literary and pictorial evidence that non-reactionary propulsion systems, like we see in the Nimitz account, have been witnessed and encountered since the beginning of our historical record. Bob Lazar speculated not that long ago that we could be another hundred years from reverse engineering the propulsion systems that we are seeing with these objects. So, what are these? What have people been seeing for centuries? You, you really think it's us? You know, like, a, is it some prank? Are they spy drones? Here at the beginning, I'm, I'm not going to waffle about whether or not this is happening. It is happening. The government has literally said so. But now we can move on to important questions that that reality raises. What is it? Who's doing it? What do they want? So on and so forth. Um, why I don't think it's us or like some secret government program. Okay, so we've been seeing and documenting uh, these reports for at least militarily speaking, for, for over 70 years. Yeah, let, let's just take that span of time. From 47 on. Uh, keep in mind, the government now says this is real. They don't know what it is, but it's real. Since 47, the name of the game has always been misinform, redirect, lie, lie, deflect, uh, lie again, yada, yada, yada. Okay. So we now know that what we're seeing is, is real. It's really happening. Um, and since 47, all, all of those things that they were seeing, uh, that they were told was nothing, <laughs> they told them it's nothing, was actually something. 
all that time. Uh, don't you think we would be using this technology by now? Like, like we've had over 70 years to play with it. Don't you think we would be taking advantage of that capability for our, ourselves in the wartime atmosphere or in military drills or training, whatever? It massively out-exceeds out our current technological capabilities of today. Imagine having access to those capabilities in the 40s and 50s? Dudes, like, we, we'd be a superpower now. I mean, nobody could mess with, you know, Cold War? Meh. Vietnam? No problemo. Okay. So why I don't think it is another government's? Same exact thing. You know, same, same thing. A, um, a master power like China, with a lot to lose, would use this in a heartbeat. And I, I assume that Russia would love to have the upper hand right now uh, so they could stop getting their butts handed to them. Don't you think they would be using something like this right now as opposed to wasting it on us with, um, what, what's, what's the explanation, spy drones, spying on us when they're at war. Not to mention, didn't they just shoot one down, <laughs> like, on the 3rd last week? Am I, am I crazy? Did you all see that article um, somewhere over Russia? I can't remember the, the location exactly, but somewhere over Russia, they saw this light anomaly, and they shot it down. <laughs> I, I don't know. Are they are they shooting themselves down, throwing us off the scent? So, uh, you know, it, it, it only leaves one option in my mind, <laughs> as, as crazy as it seems. And I, I'm not saying like little green men from space. Uh, I, I wish people would stop saying that. Stop being ridiculous. But another form of intelligent life you know, more intelligent than us, more advanced than us. Why is that such a hard concept for people to accept, to accept that possibility? We don't know everything. This stuff is real. It's not us that we know of. It's not Russia that we know of. I think it's fair to assume that it, it's something else entirely. You know, something otherworldly, maybe. I don't know. What, what, what is it? I, I don't know. So we, we are going to explore the possibilities this season. All right. Um, at the beginning of these seasons, I, I only ever have a rough idea of where I'm going to go. Um, I like to let the research lead me. So I guess we will see when we get there. Um, now, I've always been a sideline believer of this topic. I've never been a skeptic of its existence, of its validity. And it all boils down to one simple reason, um, probability. It's always seemed crazy to me. The people who can look up at the night sky or the, uh, you know, the, the massively powerful telescope images, you know, the, the pictures from deep space... They can look at all this stuff and they think, we're it. The thought is uh, absurd to me. But just like any other uh, 
topic, all other topics of the paranormal. I, I mean, I understand it because it is hard to accept things that don't align with your narrative. It's hard to accept that the reality that you have been taught, that you have become familiar with, reliant upon, may not be all there is to the story. And look, the answer to all of this, to this mystery, could be something so simple, so logical. Absolutely. But it could also be something else entirely. <laughs> you know, something maybe we haven't even considered. Um, at this point, it's in both states. It is Schrodinger's both alive and dead cat until we open the box, until we look. Um, I I'm not going to talk on forever. I promise you. I, I Let me just put a button on this thought. So imagine how long the universe existed before we came along and how long it's going to exist once we're gone. You know, we, we are just a, a blip on the radar in the whole scheme of things. To think that we are the sole intelligent inhabitants to have or will ever exist from the beginning to the end of time, that is some hardwired main character syndrome that I, I'm just not ready to entertain. I think it's quite likely that as intelligent as we think we are, it's nothing compared to something that has conceivably been around since the beginning. In the entire spectrum of all possible intelligent life um, in the time and space of the universe, we might just be sitting here on the bottom rung looking up, unable to see what's on the next rung, much less what's beyond it. And I think that is a great place to wrap up the season five intro episode. Let's do a final note. I imagine that most people who remain skeptical on the topic of UFOs are just people who are not paying close enough attention. Automatically assuming every witness account is made up or a mistake. Because there is a lot of fakery and false accounts for clout. Or maybe wishful thinking. Like a video that took TikTok by storm a couple of weeks ago of these lights swirling in the sky over Louisiana. They were clearly spotlights. Clearly. And people were buying it. And that's such a shame. It's misleading and such a waste of time and just stokes the fodder fire for skeptics everywhere. And it sucks because there is something very real taking place here. At least as far as the UFO encounters, I keep feeling pulled in two directions between the alien phenomenon and the UFO phenomenon. It's just something I need to investigate further for myself, so we'll be getting into it. There really is something to be said about accounts like the Nimitz sighting. That one really hits the spot. And it's just one of many. And according to Lou Elizondo, that one isn't even all that compelling compared to other videos that he saw during his time at ATIP. Videos that might never be released to the public. He says that for all three of those Navy pilot videos that were released, the Tic Tac, the Gimbal, and the Go Fast videos, those, according to him, are the least compelling of all that he has seen. He says there are recorded encounters with these things not 
50 feet from the cockpit. It wasn't that long ago that I, too, was not paying close enough attention. If you would have asked me about the Phoenix Lights, I would have said, a bunch of people saw a bunch of lights in the sky. The end. Or the O'Hare incident. Some baggage guys saw a flying saucer over the terminal. The end. But I'm now learning. There's so much more to it than that. These are exciting times. I never thought I would be talking about this topic on my show. But I'm glad to finally be tuning in. I'm late to the game, but better late than never. I want to thank any listener who recommended this as a topic to cover this season. I especially want to thank Mike at Extreme Paranormal Podcast. You were the deciding vote, my friend. Please like, rate, review, and share the show. I thank you so much for your support. And I thank you all for tuning in today. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Um, I am so glad to be back and back into the thick of it. Stay tuned because there is a lot more to come. But until next week, stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open. <laughs>